when hearing these ideas about soul and soulfulness and soul making it would be very understandable if a person wonders is that the Dharma? Is that Dharma? Uh, very understandable and we've <coughs> said a little bit uh, so far in different talks and earlier about the possible ways of conceiving of Dharma that might open up a, um, a space for images uh, and fantasy and this whole imaginal practice. Um, and so I want to say a little bit more about the whole relationship of uh, Dharma, ways of conceiving the Dharma and ourselves in relation to that, and uh, the relationship of that with images or imaginal practice and soul, soulfulness. So that whole uh, network of relationships and possibilities, really, possibilities of conceiving relationship there. So earlier, we, I uh, um, again was emphasizing one, I think, very fertile, very fruitful way of conceiving of Dharma and Dharma practice is as practicing, developing skill in a whole range of ways of looking and developing flexibility of ways of looking, ways of relating, ways of conceiving. In doing so, traditionally, at least how I would like to think of Dharma practice traditionally, the tradition of Dharma practice, in, in practicing a, a range of ways of looking, um, one, one sees that certain ways of looking fabricate less. They fabricate certainly less papancha, they fabricate less uh, dukkha, less suffering, they fabricate less sense of self, and they fabricate less perception. That means less actual appearance, less experience. Uh, so I'm using those words synonymously, perception, experience, appearance. And so one, one begins to get the sense of what is it um, in the way of looking at any time? What factors within the way of looking tend to fabricate more self, more dukkha, more experience, and what fabricates less? And one goes on this journey of understanding, understanding fabrication, which means understanding dependent arising very deeply. And all of that brings an understanding of emptiness. Not to stay in any state, not to stay in any one way of looking either, but through the flexibility and the movement that opens up of the, uh, the perception, the, the, the changes in perception that um, are facilitated by the changes in the way of looking, one understands emptiness more and more deeply. Uh, and so that might be a traditional way of understanding, um, or a way of understanding traditional Dharma, let's put it that way. Um, and uh, there's this, so there's this range, this flexibility of ways of looking, and, and the developing of the skill with that whole range of ways of looking. And then we also delineated within that range three broad sort of camps, or let's say directions, of, of practice. And one is, uh, is actually quite a thin avenue, is this idea of bare attention, which we said is a bit of a misnomer and a little bit misleading. 
because sometimes people think when I'm practicing mindfulness, when I'm practicing this bare attention, this simple attention, and I'm quote being with things as they are, uh, to misuse a phrase of the Buddha, when I'm doing that, then then there is no fabrication. No fabrication is occurring at that point. I'm seeing in an unfabricated way. I'm experiencing what is unfabricated. So that's to my way of thinking, definitely not the case. It's a, it's a real misunderstanding of what's happening there. Uh, and it's a misunderstanding. It will also lock down uh, what, what's possible for us, both in terms of understanding, but also in terms of the range of experience. So rather, can we see this mode of bare attention or mode of simple mindfulness as um, one mode one mode of practicing, one way of looking which fabricates relatively less, a little less than our normal modes of moving in, uh, of, of ways of looking as we move in the world every day if, if the mind is not trained. So we have bare attention as a sort of a degree, a slight, a slight decrease in, in how much fabrication there is in terms of self and perception. There is still some self being fabricated that with bare attention. There's still some, uh, definitely quite a lot of fabrication of perception. There's still conceptions, etc., wrapped up in that. So that would be that would be one uh, sort of camp or avenue um, within this range of ways of looking that make up the Dharma. Second, we said is the whole um, a whole slew of practices, whole range of practices that actually fabricate a lot less than so-called bare attention and deep emptiness practices, deep samadhi, deep metta practices, all kinds of things will actually um, not construct or deconstruct or dissolve the sense of self in that moment, in the moment of engaging certain ways of looking. Um, the sense of self, the perception, the appearances themselves begin to uh, desubstantiate, become in more less and less substantial, and and dissolve to different degrees, all the way down to total non-appearance of any experience, any any sense of self, of subject, of of consciousness, of knowing, of space, of time, etc. So there's a whole range there, and that would be a second sort of avenue. Everything that's included, all the practices that include that, fabricating, unfabricating, really uh, quite deeply. And a third uh, group or avenue is fabricating, um, actually engaging in skillful fabrication of, of self and of perception. And this third avenue opens the door, unlike the other two, unlike the bare attention and the unfabricating, um, actually this third avenue of practice, deliberate, skillful fabrication, um, creative, if you like, uh, oh, uh, gives permission and gives space and potential for the, the, the use of images and imaginal practice and, and fantasy, etc. So the bare attention as a modicum of uh, less, fabric less fabrication, the deeper, uh, less fabricating or non-fabricating, unfabricating, and, and the skillful use of, of fabrication. And in a way, any practice that we uh, any Dharma practice that we do can sort of be placed in one of those three baskets, if you like. And why not have the whole range? Uh, we should have the whole range. There's something important and beautiful in having that whole range. 
So we said all that, and we've also mentioned that with that, uh, running through all that, if you like, or alongside all that, is 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 the recognition that we also, uh, if you like, bring fancy or to our um, perception and sense of what the Dharma is, what awakening is, what who the Buddha was, etc. So there is fantasy, mythos, image um, imbuing our conceptions and um, perceptions of of all that, of Dharma, of awakening, of, of Buddha, of path, etc. And that's not a bad thing, that's part of skillful fabricating, in fact, one mode of skillful fabricating. But given all that, then we can revisit, open up a little bit more the possibilities for relationship of Dharma conception, conception of Dharma, and an imaginal practice. Because, for instance, regarding um, images of the self, or, um, yeah, if you like, self-images, um, the very emptiness of the self, the thorough, absolute emptiness of any self-image, no self-image, no self-concept or conception of what the self is, will be true, ultimately speaking. All of them are empty. And that thorough emptiness of the self allows us, in fact, um, to play with self-images, with different self-images, without believing any of them. Rather than saying, no, personality is empty, but the self really is a process. And then there's a kind of implicit belief that that process is some kind of real thing. I've talked and written about this elsewhere, I don't want to go too much into it. But that then curtails the possibilities a little bit. Um, or often one might uh, come across teachings that, or, or believe that, um, the self is, we always think of the self as some kind of puffed up ego thing. Um, ego is equated with self in a negative way, some kind of big pride or uh, grandiosity, etc. Um, and so we want to cut that in, that, in that view, we want to cut that. Or uh, we have a view, well now I have an unhealthy self-image. And through practice, I want to replace that unhealthy self-image with a healthy self-image. And then once I've done that, then I can see that actually there's no self. So there's this sort of unhealthy to healthy to no self. Um, different models, one will come across different interpretations of what the Dharma is saying in relation to self. Um, I would, as I said, rather um, open things up even more. So all self-views are empty. None of them will be ultimately true. And that absolute thoroughness of the emptiness of the self allows us to play with infinite, infinite possibilities of, of self-view, um, with a multiplicity of self-images. And, and the key word is play there and multiplicity. Playing with that multiplicity. Uh, through imaginal practice. And even the idea or, or the sense that we can sometimes have with imaginal figures uh, that they have a certain kind of reality. They do exist in some kind of way. It's a different way than concrete reality. But that they exist some way and that they shape our character in this life or our essence. 
um, in some way that they flow through us and they shape um, what we express in life. Even that kind of view has a place. It's okay because even these imaginal figures and sometimes the the word there is daemon, D-A-E-M-O-N, they are empty too. So knowing they're empty, I can entertain this sense and this idea. So sometimes, again, in, 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 in Dharma, you would come across something that says um, the, the self, um, the nature of the self, is that it's the result of all past causes and conditions and um, ideas and uh, events, etc., that I've come across. And all that connects together, that web connects together um, and gives rise to the self. And other than the self as a sort of confluence of past causes and conditions, um, the self doesn't exist. That is the true self. And that's, in this view, uh, that would be what dependent arising means and what it means to say the self is a dependent arising. It's dependent on past causes and conditions coming together and creating the self, which apart from that has no existence. That's given often as a meaning of what dependent arising, arising means, but, but, uh, and, and what it means to say the self is empty. Um, and so then, from that point of view, the idea of these imaginal figures existing somehow in some different mode of existing or kind of reality, um, different ontological status, if you like, and shaping our life and coming through in our expression, that, that wouldn't fit because it doesn't fit this model of the self. It's just the confluence of past causes and conditions. If they're these eternal figures or timeless figures, that doesn't fit that. But that view of the self is just the past causes and conditions, and that's what it means to say the self is independent, arising, and empty. That's too narrow, I would say. A full Dharma understanding what emptiness means goes way, way beyond that. That's one, um, one sort of direction into emptiness to a certain level. Full understanding of emptiness goes way, way wider, uh, multi-directional. We can see the emptiness of of something from many different directions and much deeper than that. So these imaginary figures may exist in some way, may shape my character and give give expression, be expressed through me in my life. I, they flow through me in some way or I channel them. They are empty also just because they don't exist in time. Uh, like anything, all things are empty because time is empty and everything uh, needs time to exist in. So it's not only that things are empty because they're past causes and conditions. They can be empty in lots of different ways. And all this thorough understanding of emptiness, what I'm really trying to say is the thorough and the more deep our understanding of emptiness, the more it can open out um, permission and range in terms of imaginal practice and also conception. Because we know, hey, I can conceive that because it's empty in another way. It's more fundamentally empty. So there's lots of space here in relation, in relation uh, of, uh, to self, uh, imaginal practice in relation to self and how it might fit with, with a broader Dharma conception. But how about um, with regard to the whole question of 
ending suffering or at least decreasing suffering and the whole four noble truths which really are a way of saying there is suffering and and we're in the business of ending it or decreasing it how about this whole idea of soul and imaginal practice in the service of soul how does that or how what are the ways that might interface with this whole very central um, conception in the dharma direction in the dharma of decreasing suffering freeing from suffering. Many people would, would wisely say that is what Dharma is. It's the Four Noble Truths in a nutshell, and we're in the business of, of ending or at least decreasing suffering. So how images relate to all that? Well, it depends on how we use the images and how we conceive of the images. And there are options here. So for example, um, here is some dukkha, here is some disease, some suffering, some pain. And one might let that dukkha constellate as an image. Then one has the image of this dukkha, whatever it is, this heartache, the image of this loneliness, the image of this grief or whatever. And one can relate to that by holding that image and loving that image. Uh, and that would be incorporating imaginal practice in in a way within very simply within the the, the direction of decreasing suffering and four noble truths. Or again, quite simply, one might have an image of of what is positive and beautiful, so to speak. For example, Kuan Yin or Bodhisattva of Compassion or something, um, or just an image of loving light, whatever. And through that, there is the cultivation, through practicing with that image, there's the cultivation of the beautiful and the positive. And just that by itself would fit, uh, that use of images would fit very nicely within the, the sort of program of the four, classical program of the Four Noble Truths. Or, again, and we talked about this, putting that image of love or what's beautiful, the beautiful quality of heart, putting that in contact with the dukkha, or putting that image through the imagination in contact with the image of the dukkha. So there's the image of uh, Kuan Yin contacting, embracing, shining, uh, holding the image of the dukkha. And again, all this is just a skillful use of imaginal practice. It will fit very easily within that directionality and conception of, of lessening suffering of Four Noble Truths. If, however, we bring in this conception that I talked about before of um, this nourishing and deepening and enriching and firing up and uh, uh, supporting and opening of soulfulness as a goal, then the whole relationship, um, and that, that is the thrust of imaginal practice or the direction, the opening of imaginal practice, then the relationship with um, ending dukkha becomes more complex. Because in nourishing a direction or intending a direction or supporting a direction of um, increased soulfulness, let's say, more and more soulfulness, um, with relation to this, this situation or this experience or this image, it may not end the dukkha there. Uh, this loneliness, 
and actually relating to that loneliness with a sense of really caring for the soul and the soulfulness and the soul-making there may not completely end the dukkha. It may end some of the dukkha or dissolve some of it, but may not completely end the dukkha of that loneliness. Or this endless longing, this yearning, or this eros that might burn a little bit. We, I talked about this in, in another retreat, this pothos, the infinite longing may not end that. In caring for the soulfulness, I may not dissolve that endless longing that's part of it, or the image of loneliness. I, I, I may open up to it in a different way. I may, as we, as we talked about, give it place. It finds a place. It finds its God, so to speak. But it may not end it. And maybe even some of these imaginal figures, um, as we've alluded to and I want to talk more about later, they may place demands on us. And that those demands on the being are of different kinds, are not without, without a certain amount of burden. So what does the soul want? It's a different question than just ending dukkha. What does the soul want? if we use that language. Well, it wants soulfulness. Souls want soulfulness. Souls want soul-making. And that includes fantasy, image, mythos. That's central to soul-making, soulfulness. They don't necessarily want to end dukkha. That might be included, uh, or a certain level of that might be included, but it can be slightly different things in relation to any situation or any experience or any image. And then even more complicated when we put all this in terms of more long-term goal, when, when we have more of this long-term goal of um, nourishing, deepening, opening, firing, enriching, supporting soulfulness. What's the relationship with that and ending dukkha or decreasing suffering? What's the relationship of that as a goal, as a direction? as an aspiration and a movement, uh, what's the relationship of that with the whole idea and the whole fantasy of the Dharma? Complex. Complex and not necessarily um, easy even to inquire into. Let's, let's go into this slowly. If at times, at times, soulfulness is my priority, rather than just my priority in approaching this experience or this dukkha or this image or whatever, rather than my priority being just letting go or non-clinging or non-attachment or cultivating the positive or seeing that it's not self or seeing the emptiness of this or that. So if at times, rather than all those more traditional Dharma intentions in approaching experience, um, if at times the soulfulness is my priority, then that already, um, we can already equate that with a kind of recognition. There's already going on there a recognition that image and fantasy uh, are present, and we're already honoring our need for them by making soulfulness a priority in understanding that and working with that. But that will have quite a few, as we practice that way, with that recognition and making selfness a priority at times, it will have all kinds of um, openings and consequences. So let's uh, actually list um, perhaps five at least of them. 
and explore them a little bit. Because as I do that, as I recognize the presence of image and fantasy and honor my need for that and honor the need for soulfulness, I begin, as I do that more and more through practice and I get a feel for it, it changes my vision, literally. It changes my, my, my ways of looking and uh, perceiving things. And I begin to recognize what we've alluded to quite a few times already. I begin to recognize the fantasies in everything that I care about. Everything that's meaningful to me, I recognize is shot through with fantasy, with image, with mythos. It's um, imbuing everything that I love, um, including, I, re I begin to recognize the fantasies that uh, are imbue my, my whole sense of the Dharma and my whole vision and sense and conception of what awakening is and who the Buddha was and the historical Buddha and, and my whole idea of ending dukkha or decreasing dukkha. And you can see, for instance, just historically, the vision of all that, particularly what awakening is, who the Buddha is and what it means to end dukkha, if we compare sort of three uh, streams, if you like, of Dharma, the more Vajrayana, the Tantric tradition, has a very different fantasy and conceptual framework of what those things mean, ending Dukkha, um, awakening the Buddha, etc. Compare that with sort of more classical Theravadin teachings of ending rebirth, etc., and the historical Buddha and all that, and compare that with some of the more modern uh, interpretations of Dharma, what I call more existentialist, or, or uh, etc. Again, the the fantasy of ending dukkha, the fantasy of the self on the path to that, uh, whatever that much more limited ending of dukkha is, because the existential view would say, well, we can only end dukkha to a certain degree doesn't buy into the whole rebirth thing, etc., etc. There's three different streams there with very different fantasies and conceptual frameworks operating. I've talked about this in other talks on other retreats. I'm not going to go into it again. None of that is bad. The only, the only problem would be is if I don't recognize that fantasy is running through all this. Really, really important. And when I, once I recognize that and really begin to admit it and open to it instead of... Um, uh, either pretending it's not happening or admitting it but not recognizing how, f how deeply and fully it imbues things and, and what the implications are. Once I recognize that, then actually it puts the Dharma on a different ground. We have a different grounding then for Dharma and it's grounded more in imagination and fantasy. Interesting. That, that's quite radical, I think. What, what does it mean to, to, to have as our sense of the ground of the Dharma uh, that, it, that it is already imaginal? And then this whole question, uh, which, why is it so important, this whole, this whole question when we hear some teaching or this person's teaching or that teaching or we read something and, and a person says, yes, but is that Buddhism? What, when we realize the the, the Dharma is grounded in, in imagination anyway, and as I'll point out later, also metaphysical assumptions. Again, I talked about this on other retreats. I'm not going to go too much into it. Uh, it's grounded very differently in that recognition. There's a fan fantasies are operating of Dharma, of awakening, etc., and also metaphysical assumptions. 
Now, we could also point historically to how different, say, um, Japanese or Chinese Buddhism is from Indian Buddhism. It's, rad- it's complete. I'm not even sure the Buddha would recognize it as Buddhism. Um, so there are historical, cultural changes which we can kind of deconstruct, etc., um, and point to that and say, well, is that Buddhism, etc. That's a different tack. It's important, but it's a different tack. And already in the West, in terms of what we add conceptually and in the cultural mind view and what we let go of, um, so there are those kind of historical changes. But I want to say something a little bit different. It has more to do with this recognition, as I said, of, of fantasy um, at the basis of the grounding of what the Dharma is and also the metaphysical assumptions and the key word there is assumptions that we cannot get away. You pursue philosophical questions deeper, 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 deeper. You get to whole questions about how we know anything, how we can trust what we know about what's real, etc. And, and somewhere or other we have to assume something or other. And I can't get beyond having to make assumptions philosophically. And that's metaphysics, whether I like it or not. So a grounding... Strange this, strange reconfiguring, tectonic shift, a grounding in the recognition that, that uh, the imagination is the ground of the Dharma, and a, a metaphysical assumptions also. So then, then we can start to ask, what is going on psychologically for a person when they're, they're um, sort of getting agitated about... Um, who or what the historical Buddha actually was and whether this or that is Buddhist or not. What's going on psychologically? What kind of fantasies are operating for that person around the Buddha historically, around Buddhism, around Dharma, around self, around all that? Something's going on in the psyche in relationship to all that. And it hasn't quite recognized the the grounding. It hasn't recognized that, that actually we can ground the whole thing in image. It hasn't realized that anyway there's metaphysical assumptions operating in any any framing of the Dharma, of the path, of the goal, awakening, all the rest of it. So there's this different ground, this recognition of fantasy and, and that brings a different ground for the Dharma in the imagination. And and then uh, the other question that comes out of this is this is pursuing at times soulfulness as a priority. It starts to open up other questions and we start to realize, oh, how am I, what is my fantasy? What fantasies are operating in this very question of how we conceive soulfulness and its relationship to the Dharma? You understand? And that includes the fantasy of the self. So this whole, this whole question that we're talking about right now, one could, and people do very much try, this is my interpretation of the Dharma and this new concept, which probably comes from something Western in psychotherapy or something for a person about childhood experiences or whatever. And I try and kind of make a point that that's already within the Dharma historically, or this or that, or it's a more materialistic view. And again, I try and spin the history of the Dharma and say this is what the Buddha was really trying to say historically. And so I place the whole thing in, in a, I'm framing it as this is within the Dharma. 
And I'm, the self then is just um, kind of championing, uh, rescuing the Buddha's original message, perhaps. Um, so one could um, try, I could try, um, if I was so inclined, to put all this talk of soulfulness in and try and present it as a more traditional Dharma package that was already there, that I'm just kind of amplifying a little bit. Or... We could say, you could, I could say, oh, this soulfulness, what we're really doing is expanding the Dharma. Okay? We inherited this much Dharma, this range, and now we're expanding it, as, as is our right culturally. You and I talking about this um, business about soul and soulfulness and soul-making are actually stretching what the Dharma means. And that would be a fantasy. And then the fantasy of the self there is as a stretcher, as an expander. Or another possibility is um, we're breaking out of the Dharma. That could be a fantasy of what we're doing with this talk of soulfulness and soul and soul-making. And then the fantasy of the self within that is as a, what, as some kind of um, explo explo exploder of, of limits, exploder of uh, tradition in terms of icon iconoclasm, an iconoclastic self, etc., different styles of fantasy of how we're conceiving the whole relationship of soulfulness with the Dharma, and in that, wrapped up in that, as always, is a fantasy of self. But with any um, fantasy of a tradition or a trajectory or a path, um, it has to be engaging and enchanting to me. So even if I try and put this, let's say I choose the fantasy of it's within the Dharma, it's already there, it was already there, I'm just I'm highlighting it. Um, when whatever fantasy I have of the Dharma there and of the self, that has to be engaging and enchanting to me. So do you understand? It's like the whole fantasy of this work and the conceptual work itself and also the fantasy of the Dharma what is the conception? What is the framework of the Dharma that I'm, that I'm engaging in? Is it engaging to me? Am I engaged by it? Is it enchanting to me? Because I could go further and say, is it big enough? Is my fantasy of the Dharma big enough for the soul? Or will the soul outgrow the conceptual box and, and, and the fantasy box of the Dharma that I have right now? This is an important question. So when I take soulfulness and this sensitivity to soulfulness and, and the desire to nourish it and support and, as I say, enrich and deepen and open, expand it and grow it, care for it, when that becomes, if you like, um, at least at times, the principal navigator, that sets us on an open-ended journey. It has no limits. Soulfulness, the increase in soulfulness, the deepening, the enriching of soulfulness has, uh, is open-ended and without limit. And in part, that's because um, the, the, the psyche's desire for soul-making will uh, keep opening and deepening the range of perception. I'm going to come back to this. So, when we take soulfulness as, as 
if you like, the most important thing. And we navigate that way. At those times, um, the psyche's desire for soul-making will open and deepen and expand the range of perception of self, of other, and world. And that expanding of the range of perception is part of soulfulness. And that's part of what makes this navigation by soulfulness, by sensitivity to soulfulness, open-ended. How, uh, rather, the pace at which that um, deepening and expanding of the range of perception, the range of appearance and experience, the pace at which that happens is quite individual. I think it depends, if you like, on how much fire, so to speak, um, a person has, how, how fiery their soul is, how much eros runs through their soul and drives their soul. So some people are really um, quite fiery and quite quick. There's a lot of eros there. I'm going to come back to this soon. Um, and, and so the, this opening of the perception of self, other, world, etc., this, this opening of more and more soulfulness, um, and this movement of soul-making that opens up that range happens quite quickly. They burn through uh, quite quickly into new territory. And other people it's very, very slow. And other people it barely seems to move much at all. So when we take soulfulness as navigator, we're in a way saying yes to the psyche's desire for soul-making. I'm going to come back to this. And that keeps opening the range of perception, 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 experience, the range of experience of self, other world, and that happens at different paces for different people. But the question, is my Dharma framework that I'm operating in, is my fantasy or vision, if you like, my mythos of the Dharma, is it big enough? Or will the self outgrow it if I let soulfulness be um, what steers me or, or the beacon if you like, the, the pole star I'm moving towards, the direction I'm moving in. So there's the recognition of the place of image and fantasy and the, the uh, honoring of our need for image, fantasy and soulfulness, and that expands into this recognition of that that's everywhere in imbuing the fantasy image mythos are imbuing whatever I care about and then recognizing that actually through that we can put the Dharma on a different ground on imaginal ground and then there's the question how even what is the fantasy of how I'm conceiving of the relationship of soulfulness and, and Dharma and the self within that and then this question is my fantasy and my conception of the Dharma big enough or will the self outgrow it And in all of this, um, I mentioned this before, but I'll say it again, it's quite a big subject, but there's a, there can be a very different relationship um, to make a connection. There can be a very different relationship of, of this teaching of the Four Noble Truths and clinging, uh, a very different relationship with that teaching. So very often people hear that um, clinging causes suffering, and if you don't cling, then you will suffer less or won't suffer at all. And, and they try and make this non-clinging 
uh, or lesson in clinging, a way of life. They try and live that way. And very soon they're going to run into um, problems there. It, it becomes, sounds a little unkind, but it becomes a little bit silly. It's impossible. And it will not fit our life, and it certainly will not fit our soul. Um, and But so trying to move through the world that way is a little bit um, unwise. Um, it won't help the soulfulness. It's impossible. It's, it's not very skillful. Versus actually regarding this whole teaching about clinging and um, letting go of clinging and the whole, if you like, shorthand version of the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering. It's caused by clinging. I can release that clinging and have freedom from suffering or some degree of freedom from suffering. That's a four shorthand version of Four Noble Truths. It's almost like a lens, a way of approaching things. Using that as a key, so that shorthand version uh, of the Four Noble Truths and, and the teaching about clinging and ways of, ways of clinging less, using that as a key that opens up the whole realm of perception. And that's related to this whole idea about fabrication because it's clinging more centrally than anything else and clinging in the wide range of what that means that actually fabricates self and dukkha and perception of appearances. So I start playing with this business of clinging and letting go of clinging in this framework or lens of the Four Noble Truths. And lo and behold, it functions like a key that opens up not just freedom at different times, but a whole deeper understanding of the fabrication of perception, the emptiness of all things through that. So I, I should say much, much more about that. We don't have time. I've talked about it a lot and written about it as well. But, but r rather than letting go of clinging as a, as a way of life, a lot of people try and get into that, un even unconsciously, as, as a mode, rather using it as a way of practicing um, this decrease in clinging in different ways to different degrees and seeing that that functions as a key that opens understanding and opens perception. One way or another, through emptiness practice, through imaginal practice or whatever, we begin to see that Dharma concepts, clinging and Four Noble Truths and this and that, they're not realities. They are not realities. Dharma concepts are not pointing to real things. They are ways of looking. A Dharma concept functions best when it is a way of looking. And said there's a range of way of looking, not a single way of looking, but Dharma concepts offer, um, uh, they, they offer, they each offer slightly different lenses, and even those lenses have ranges in them. So Dharma concepts are not realities, they're ways of looking that bring freedom. And also, that, br that bring freedom both in the future but also in the moment. So Dharma concepts are ways of looking that bring freedom, but also that liberate other ways of looking or that liberate our ability and our flexibility to look in different ways. So we pick up Dharma concepts not as realities but as tools, as lenses, as ways of looking. They bring freedom in the moment. We can see that and feel that. And through all that it actually liberates more ways of looking. In other words, it opens up the perception. So Dharma concepts um, bring a sense of freedom from dukkha, but they also open the perception. And this is crucial. And that's a very different way of understanding the Dharma. 
what we're trying to do, what the central thrust and movement of the Dharma is. And as I said, it's, I, I would feel it's more fertile in terms of what it then offers in relationship to imaginal practice and by, giving, um, by allowing place and space for imaginal practice. And so in relation to this, all this is, is, is still talking about the relationship of this ideas of soul and soulfulness and soul making with the whole idea of ending or at least decreasing dukkha. So we have to have a, a slightly different way of conceiving of the Dharma than what may be normal to allow this kind of fertility. Now, I would say I would say that we can orient, one can orient um, this um, navigation of practice and practices um, uh, taking soulfulness as our uh, caring for soulfulness and soul-making as um, what's helping to navigate us. We can orient that um, in a way, definitely, that eventually brings more and more really uh, uh, lovely sense of lightness into the whole sense of existence. More and more a sense of the transparency of things, the diaphanous nature of things, the beauty, different kinds of beauty, as I said, depth, sacredness. We can orient this um, care for the soul, this care for soulfulness and soul-making, so that it does um, liberate in these ways and bring a freeing up and an opening of the range of perception. In a way, perception gets healed of its limitations, which are often limitations that we don't even realize because we're just so used to them and everyone in the culture seems to agree on them. So one of the freedoms here um, is this freeing up of the range of perception, the healing of perception, and also in ways that we wouldn't get without taking this, taking our navigation um, through the care of the soul and the soulfulness and the soul-making. Because, for instance, um, just seeing in terms of, just purely in terms of emptiness, the emptiness of all things or the oneness of all things or this and that, it will give a universal sense everything is empty or everything is one or whatever it is but it loses the personal dimension I'm going to come back to that hopefully in other talks so this healing of perception this opening of the range of perception through imaginal practice and through caring for the soul and taking that as a principal navigator that allows the perception to open up in ways that beautifully bring together or include both the personal dimensions, the dimension of personhood and the universal, and um, have both together or can lean on one or the other. So we can take soulfulness as, as, as what uh, guides us and, and the care for soulfulness and soul-making as what guides us in practice. And eventually there will be a lot less dukkha, or we can steer it in that direction. Um, but on the way, it may include 
um, the dukkha of certain images and certain fantasies. And we're just conceiving it in a slightly different way. We're saying soulfulness is important, is the primary thing, rather than ending dukkha is the primary thing, which would be a classically dharmic way of seeing things. Always ending dukkha is what's most important, decreasing dukkha. So the goal and the orientation may be conceived differently, but certainly it's possible to steer um, through the care of the soul and using that as the navigator principle into um, a lot of freedom, a lot of lightness and transparency, beauty, sacredness, freeing up of the perception in really uh, broad and beautiful ways. So we might ask too, uh, given all of this, everything we've said so far about soul and soulfulness and soul making, we, let's um, move on and, and, and ask, um, or rather say, state that part of soul making is in relationship to concept, or part of soul making involves conceptual, conceptualizing concepts. And we said this before, but again, to stress it. What the question becomes, what conceptual framework, what conceptions, what idos, to use that Greek word again, and um, what ideas and ways of looking um, nurture, deepen, open, ignite, enrich, and support and nourish soulfulness? What conceptual frameworks um, aid the soulfulness? So that becomes a question that is part of practice. Just as in a more traditional Dharma understanding, the question would be what conceptual frameworks um, help us to decrease or end dukkha. So again, I mentioned in other talks, all philosophical systems, if we're talking now about conceptual frameworks, all philosophical systems run into problems of one kind or another at some point. Um, and they all will rest on assumptions. Eventually, we come to a place where we just are making assumptions. We dig deeper and deeper and deeper and go, and we realize, oh, the system of philosophy rests on an assumption. So one of the conceptual frameworks that gives that really supports a sense of soul and soulfulness and soul-making um, is this idea, which we've touched on already, that image, mythos, fant fantasy is primary it's fundamental and primary. That is not something that we could ever prove, I don't think. It's impossible to prove it. I'm not even interested in proving it. Uh, I don't feel I need to prove it because there's no truth claim there. If we turn the whole question around philosophically, what we can prove and what I, I uh, uh, spent a little time doing is actually proving perhaps or uh, the, the mistakes or the exposing some of the assumptions or, or critiquing, um, say, the dominant views of the culture or any views that claim, claim some kind of reality or truth. One can actually prove that any system or philosophy, even if it's dressed up as not a system that claims um, some kind of reality or truth, has, uh, one can critique it from a number of different directions. Oftentimes, especially nowadays, and even some uh, presentations of modern Dharma will say, oh, I'm not interested in truth, um, truth is an oppressive notion, etc., etc. Um, but 
still contain within them implicitly some notion of what's true and, and what's false and lean towards often what's quite a limited version of what's true while verbally rejecting the whole notion of truth and saying I'm not interested in that. Um, so one could philosophically, uh, as I said, critique quite strongly um, dominant views that claim a certain reality or truth, usually implicitly, or dismiss um, imagination uh, or images, imaginal practice, and this talk of soul as metaphysics. As I've said else, elsewhere, there's always um, a hidden metaphysics in those kind of notions always a hidden ontology, assumption about what's real, always a hidden epistemology, always a hidden cosmology. So what if we really open up to that, recognize it, all that, and, uh, and then just see what if we entertain this conceptual framework and see what happens? What if we entertain that conceptual framework and see what happens? And by entertain, I don't just mean think it, I mean actually see through it, view through it. I'm talking about practice here in a way that affects perception. And practice is not practice as far as I'm concerned unless it affects perception. So a meditator is someone who plays with different um, ways of looking, relationships, conceptions, in, a way, in ways that it affects perception, that, that affect perception. So we say, what if this conceptual frame, what if this one, and we sort of put it in and take it for a ride and see what happens. So philosophies and conceptual frameworks become more like doors, opportunities. That word actually is portas, um, uh, like portal or port, is related to the, words, uh, to the word for door our word for door. So rather than um, getting stuck in, in, in uh, truth claims, we're actually very, very light uh, and flexible and uh, agile with, with conceptual frameworks, using them as doors opportunistically, as opportunities for what can come, what uh, can grow uh, and open up through this door. We enter through this door and a world opens up. So in terms of we're asking now, what is it that supports and nourishes soulfulness? And one answer to that is, is the conceptual frameworks that we're entertaining and the relationship with conceptual frameworks. And another um, aspect of what supports soulfulness is, is, the, is, is love. Love and desire and eros. And this is huge. I want to just say a little bit now. I've said before... Uh, where there is love, their image or fantasy or mythos is operating. So if a person feels like, I'm not sure, where is the image in my life? Where is the fantasy? Look where there is love. Where there is love, there there is image and fantasy or mythos. Or we could turn that around and say, um, fantasy and image are part of loving deeply. They're necessary in loving deeply, especially when we're talking about personal love. Fantasy and image are beautiful, necessary part of loving deeply. But we could say a little more. We could say also that, um, or just state as almost axiomatic, eros is also part of soul making. Eros is part of soul making. 
Now, what do I mean by eros? So this is quite tricky. Um, again, I'd, I'd partly like to say eros is undefinable. And I think, I think that's actually very wise. Uh, I'm not sure if we'll get to it this retreat, how much we can fit this in, but perhaps at another time in the future. Um, there's something about that that's really valuable to hold eros as, as a, um, an undefinable, very expanding idea. And, but, but certainly by eros, when I use that word, or even erotic, I don't just mean the sexual. Okay, so it includes the sexual, but not just that. Let's say for now, for now, that eros is the desire for more connection. Okay, so you can see how that could obviously include the sexual, etc. But let's say for now, as a sort of springboard um, definition, loose springboard definition of eros it's the desire for more connection with another with um, ourselves even with something in the world with with whatever now this desire for more connection um, it, it operates in relationship to anything we uh, love or anything where there is soulfulness and it desires so to speak to penetrate further uh, the image of uh, uh, that desire to penetrate further what we love. I'm using deliberately sexual language here, erotic language. The desire of eros is to penetrate further. It wants more connection. It wants to penetrate further, or you could say more in a more feminine mode, it wants to open more. Uh, open more to what we love, or open up what we love even more. So it wants to penetrate further into what we love for more connection. It wants to open up what we love. Um, it wants to expand it. It wants to inseminate the image of the beloved. So the desire of Eros is to inseminate the image of the beloved. Um, so for example, uh, one of the... could think of many examples, but let's say one of the musicians um, I, I really really love is uh, Keith Jarrett. Some of you may know him. He's actually done a, he's a huge, uh, broad range of, of work, so I'm not crazy about all of it, but but um, a lot of it um, uh, I really uh, love, and I, and I love him, and I'm, again, like Eric Dove, so thankful for, for him. But in my image of him, or rather, and so in the love and in the image of him, there's the love and the image of him, that image at this point includes a kind of vague sense of, um, let's say, what or who he channels. And again, not using that word in too concrete or, or, or literal or tight a way as, as sometimes in the New Age does. But there's some vague sense there of what or who he channels through his music and through his dedication to music. That So in my image of him, it's he is more than human. The image makes him more than human in some way. You understand? The image of Keith Jarrett is inseminated through the eros to be, uh, to open up, to expand, uh, in this case, in this way. So it's not just, just I'm interested in more of his music and I want to hear this and I want to hear that. And I, it, 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 but it's actually what he is. The image of him uh, gains depth. He's no longer just just a human being. He's, he is that, of course. Uh, just a human musician. There's something else with it, but it's vague. Okay? And I'm not taking it completely literally. So this um, opening up 
of the image uh, and the fantasy of someone or something that we love, that there is this eros connection with, opens up the perspective, enriches the perspective, and that in itself is an increase in the soulfulness, a nourishing, a deepening of the soulfulness. They're, they're almost like one and the same thing. And, and with that too, there is a nourishing and a supporting and an opening and enriching of the, the, the resonances and the range and the depth of the sense of sacredness. So all this goes together. Now, in other words, my sense of Keith Jarrett is something coming through is something very sacred. There's a real sense of holiness there. Um, in other words, or with that, the, if we're now with Greek words, mythos and eros and psyche, and so let's use another word, logos, L-O-G-O-S, which, which I'm going to use as, as conceptual framework. And that also opens up. In other words, I, I don't just think of him as a biological machine with amazing neural networks that can do all this incredible improvising and, and incredible dexterity of, of the hands, etc., and, and the um, ears trained in this way and that way. Yes, yes, all that. But wrapped up in the logos wrapped up in the conceptual framework, wrapped up in the image of him, the eros, the love, expands more and more so that he becomes in the image more than human. And in the image it makes necessary then, I have to make room with the logos, with the conceptual framework for a different dimension of sacredness beyond the human. So I'm saying this quite clumsily, I apologize. What I'm really trying to say is the eros and the psyche, and the, 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 the soulfulness, and the logos, the conceptual framework, they end up fertilizing each other. Um, the eros uh, opens up the image, enriches the image, penetrates, it wants to penetrate further, and it needs a space to penetrate into, so it has to impregnate the image of what we love, inseminate it, open it, expand it, and in doing that, it gives it other dimensions. That's, that's part of expanding it. And those other dimensions, the mind, the conceptual framework, needs to expand to accommodate and support those other dimensions that we sense in the image. So the soulfulness, the sacredness, the conceptual framework, the image, the eros, these are all feeding each other. Because when there's uh, more of a sense of depth now, let's say in this image sense of Keith Jarrett, then I love him more because I'm loving more than just the human and all his human challenges and the dedication, etc. I'm loving even more than that. I'm including that, but even more. So there's more eros and more fertility of, of, of the soulfulness of the conceptual framework, the, the way these things grow together. I hope this makes sense. So images, fantasies, um, mythoi, they, they need to and they will contact life. We've talked a little bit about that, we'll talk more about that. And in so doing, they bring healing of different kinds. And they also deliteralize life. So instead of life is just this, just that, this is my story, as we alluded to earlier. The whole um, 
if you like, imbuing of life or recognition of life with images and recognition that image and fantasy operating deliteralizes life. Soul making um, uh, comes into life and into experience and into the sense of self and other, coloring life, ensouling life. Objects, things, experiences are enriched, given depth, uh, another dimension, if you like, if we use that word again without being too tight around it. And uh, they expand the uh, perception. So the perception then is is different of things because they have this other uh, soul dimension to them. So through the love, uh, and because there's a different uh, sense of things, a different perception of things, they're more ensouled, we love them more. The love is deeper. And that love, as I said, that eros wants to, it will by itself, expand further. It wants to penetrate further into this image, open this image up even more into greater depth. So there is this mutual opening or mutual inseminating of the eros, of the psyche and soulfulness, and of the logos, of the conceptual framework. Granting and giving soul to the world, ensouling. What is it to sense the world with soul? And this is actually open-ended, this mutual opening, this mutual insemination of eros, psyche or soul, and logos. Potentially open-ended. And we'll come back to this, I hope. What is it, though, we could ask, and we should ask, what is it that um, helps to open the soul in this way, the psyche in this way, the soulfulness? And what is it corresponding that blocks the opening of the, of the soul and the psyche, the soulfulness? Well, very often what happens is we're stuck and clinging to one view, uh, either one image, or more often we're not seeing something as an image. And we're literalizing it. This is reality. This self-image is true. That's the image of the other. We don't recognize its image. We're stuck in one view, not recognizing its image. And this whole fertility of uh, that's granted by the, um, the conceptual framework being open and having room for image and the growth of that, the, the mutual fertility of psyche, eros, and logos is blocked, is stuck. Sometimes it's that, that we're clinging too tightly to one view. Or we don't see image as image, it's too literal, and then the whole thing just grinds to a halt because it's too concrete. Sometimes what we need is to bring in or allow or hear from someone else a different way of storying something in our life where where actually the soul and this fertilization process has gotten stuck and, and contracted, rigidified. You said, let in another image or see it through the lens of another image, this experience or this image itself or this history of mine. And that brings uh, more freedom. It frees things up and also allows the soulfulness to grow. Gets, the soulfulness is nourished. So I remember um, some of you will have heard me tell that story of the retreatant um, 
where I offered the image at some point when we were talking of the sacred prostitute in relation to her past and uh, things that had happened and uh, paths she had gone down when she was much, much younger. So she was stuck in a certain way of looking, a certain view, clinging to a certain view of that past and of herself in that past that was bound up in shame and literalism. And by, by just suggesting another, actually just bringing another image into the field as we were talking, uh, a lot of freeing up happened and a, a, re, a re-souling, if you like, happened of the whole story. And the shame dissolved, etc. So sometimes we're stuck in one image, taking it as real, and we need to bring in uh, or or have access to some other image, a a multiplicity that opens things up. Or, as I said, it might be that the conceptual framework is uh, the logos is too rigid. So this is our box of what reality is or what the Dharma is or whatever it is. And, and the box is too tight. It does not allow a deepening or opening of the perception. So I cannot see Keith Jarrett that way because I don't believe that. I just believe in human beings and neurological wiring, which because of neuroplasticity can be trained and quite extraordinarily so. And so the... the Logos has its limits, and the it will not allow this deepening and opening and expanding of the perception of the image, and because of that, the eros cannot increase because it's it it uh, has only so much area to move into. It doesn't this expanding of the image that's allowed with a wider conceptual framework or a looser flexibility with conceptual framework doesn't support the deeper movement of uh, and growing of love and the movement of the eros. There's a kind of infertility there because of the rigidity and the tightness and the smallness of the conceptual framework, the logos. So again, uh, actually just to point out, with the with the logos, with the conceptual framework, um, that is an aspect of of soul, we could say, that's involved um, where there is fantasy and love, logos is always involved. Conceptual framework is always involved. For example, we might have um, a fantasy um, of, of practice and uh, we might love, for example, mindfulness. For people, uh, I, I love mindfulness, but wrapped up in, in that um, is actually a love of certain ideas wrapped up in, in the mindfulness itself. My idea of mindfulness, my logos of mindfulness, fantasy of mindfulness, they're all wrapped up together, implicitly and explicitly. So, for example, in my love of mindfulness, in my fantasy of practice, is wrapped up potentially ideas about simplicity, And the beauty of simplicity, that's an idea. The idea that mindfulness is something simple. Or the idea of that when I'm mindful, I'm being with what actually is. Now that's a huge idea that's dressed up as as a non-idea, as an absence of idea. No, 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 I'm just being non-conceptual. I'm just being simple by being with what actually is. It's it's uh, an idea that's part, and I'm in love with that idea, 
as part of my love of mindfulness. And there's a lot involved in that idea, and it's dressed up, as I said, as a non-idea, as an absence of ideation. Or maybe wrapped up in my love of mindfulness is the whole um, love of being versus doing. I love to be. I love to just be and drop doing. A lot of ideas wrapped up. I'm in love with that idea, and that idea itself has a lot of ideas within it. Or it might be the kind of mindfulness that's really into um, this kind of microscopic attention to appearances and um, penetrating them or perceiving them down to their elemental nature and moments of this or that or, or whatever. And again, wrapped up in my love of practicing mindfulness that way in that direction is also that idea of scrutinizing and dissecting things to their elemental nature, to their real nature, whatever. So, conceptual frameworks, logos, um, ideas are, are involved where there's fantasy and love, just to point that out. This eros, psyche, logos, they're completely interweaved. You could say they're actually aspects of each other, of soul. And again, to stress that when we cling to a certain logos or a certain conceptual framework, uh, that it will limit or prevent the opening of perception. Because it only has a certain range, it cannot entertain and give ground and support to a perception that does not make sense within that conceptual framework. So it limits and prevents the opening of perception, the opening of experience. And the question is, individually, how, how quick does um, the fire of Eros burn and penetrate and open uh, so that it needs a new logos and also new images or deeper or more fertile? How quick does that burn in us? It's very individual. But all this, I'm saying it because it's all related to, to this whole investigation of the relationship of soulfulness and dharma and ways of conceiving dharma. All this is related, it's wrapped up in there. So, part, in a, in a way, we could say exploring this very question of the relationship of soulfulness and dharma is potentially itself also soul-making. But it brings in to, to the very exploration, the um, the ideas of, of of soul and soul making and conceptual frameworks, different ways of understanding the Dharma and eros and all that together in relationships and it is it, it can be itself um, something that is soul making. <laughs>